and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and today I'm getting a chance to finally take another look back at the Punisher Max series. And I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm in love with this series, and really I have been for a pretty long time now. Which is maybe one of the worst kept secrets of my podcast, but... This is just, this is a title that I don't really get to talk about as often as I might like because there are so many other comics that I want to talk about that I, that I love probably just about as much as the Punisher Max. And so anyway, I guess one does what one must, but uh, basically what's going on here is that today's issue of the Punisher Max, which is to say uh, the Punisher Max number 13, I would say that by this point, we're comfortably into uh, the Garth Ennis, like, we're starting to get into, I guess, like the cream of the crop as far as the Punisher Max series is concerned. That's not, that's really not a swipe against the the issues that we've read, or at least that have been, that, that I've talked about in uh, the previous episodes. But at the same time, there's a reason why I just wanted to talk about all of those storylines all at once, rather than going issue by issue by issue, you know? There's a reason for that, you know? I just, I like, basically, I like where the Punisher Max starts going and in, in, starting in the 13th issue and then just going forward from there. So probably in the future, I'm probably just going to go one issue at a time with the Punisher. So I guess we'll see. But either way, you know, that's pretty much what we're up to here. And I guess without any further ado, let's just go ahead and get into it. This is The Punisher Max, number 13. Publisher is Marvel Comics. Imprint is obviously Max. Cover date is January 2005. On sale date is November the 3rd, 2004. Cover price is $2.99. Title is Mother Russia, Part, Ru- uh, part 1. Writer is Garth Ennis, penciler is Doug Braithwaite, inker is Bill Reinhold, letterer is Randy Gentile, colorist is Raul Trevino, editor is Axel Alonso. Story synopsis is as follows. The Punisher has been hunting Leon Rastovich for 30 years. When the jerk finally gets released from prison, the Punisher makes a point of tracking him down before somebody else finds him. The trail leads back to Leon Rastovich's mother's house. The Punisher takes out Rastovich, his mother, and Rastovich's entire crew. There he's intercepted by Nick Fury with a job offer. In exchange for access to virtually every major United States law enforcement agency's databases, Fury needs the Punisher to do a virtually impossible suicide mission. The Punisher accepts his offer. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, as I say, I'm a I'm a fan of the Punisher from way back, and specifically the Punisher Max. You know, I mean, the Punisher is one of those characters that, at least prior to the Punisher Max series, I'd always kind of thought of was kind of one note. You know, I really liked Chuck Dixon's work on the Punisher, but then I'm kind of a Chuck Dixon fan anyway, so what's it worth? But I'm, I am I liked Chuck Dixon's work on The Punisher, but if you'd asked me before I ever read The Punisher Max, I probably would have said, that's not only the best that The Punisher ever was, that's probably about as good as The Punisher can be. Now, no disrespect to Chuck Dixon, whose shoes I'm not fit to tie, obviously, but it is... I think realistic to say that Garth Ennis's work on the Punisher, it's just several miles ahead of even Chuck Dixon, you know, and Chuck Dixon is already setting the bar pretty fucking high, you know? So to say that Garth Ennis is better than Garth Ennis's Punisher is better than Chuck Dixon's Punisher. You're, you're really, you're, you're really making a pretty big statement there, but it's one that I stand by. So anyway, uh, as far, like taking, taking this thing literally from the start, the cover, I actually found some kind of interesting trivia about this. Thomas Jane, who starred in the 2004 Punisher movie, agreed to pose as Nick Fury 
for the cover of uh, The Punisher Max number 13. And honestly, I mean, Thomas Jane is not one of those uh, actors or celebrities or whatever that's so recognizable to me that I'd be able to pick him out of anywhere. So finding out about this, that, you know, he he basically posed for uh, Nick Fury on this cover. Wow. You know, that was that was just kind of cool to to find out about. But to get into the story proper, basically, page one kicks off with this this old timer, uh, this Russian old timer in some shitty uh, Russian oriented bar in New York, basically talking about basically how much Russia's star has fallen, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, this old man, uh, his name is, I'm going to do my best to, to pronounce this. Uh, his name is Alexander Baranovich Form, uh, Formachenko, Formachenko, I guess is how you pronounce it. Um, he's basically, I don't think they ever, I mean, he, he kind of alludes to, you know, some of his old, affi- uh, affiliations, but, I think probably the easiest way to say it is that he he was a member of the Red Army. And so just to kind of put that in uh into perspective, you know, the the division specifically that he says that he served in was well I'm just going to read his dialogue. He says, "I was at Leningrad when the Nazis came in 1941. 3 years we held out." Three years before they could relieve us. So you want to talk about being in the shit. Leningrad was, you were in the shit if you were in Leningrad in 1941. Because basically, Hitler launched Operation Barbarossa in the summer of uh, 1941. And obviously did not win. But one of the things that you guys need need to remember is that basically it was ultimately a couple of different factors that that uh, defeated the Nazis whenever they invaded the Soviet Union, right? For one thing, the weather just turned against them, you know? I mean, they had all of this heavy machinery that they were attempting to move across the uh, Soviet countryside, and ultimately just the winter turned against them. Really, I would say at probably the worst possible time, and so the thinking goes that if Hitler had basically launched the invasion three weeks sooner than he did, the winner wouldn't have made much of a difference. They would, I mean, by the skin of their teeth, but the Nazis probably would have taken, um, uh, they probably would have taken Moscow and in the process basically deposed Stalin and then that would have been that. So, so there was that. The other thing was that Hitler was only really using like a fraction of his war machine in the uh, in launching Operation Barbarossa. Now, this is still the biggest military invasion in human history, right? So even though he was only using a fraction of his war machine, he was using probably at that point the great majority of it, you know? And so still not 100%. The reason for that was because he was tied up uh, by this point – when you start getting into 1941, uh, the armistice had basically been signed with France. And so that particular element of the war was basically a non-issue. But uh, Germany was still uh, they, they, Germany was still, in, still at war with uh, the British Empire. And really the thing that, that slowed down progress with the British Empire is that when Churchill started bombing German civilians... Hitler started bombing British civilians. Now, if Hitler had basically stayed on target with uh, bombing uh, uh, British military installations, they were already teetering on collapse. And so if he'd kept that going and just stayed away from bombing the British uh, civilians, Britain would have had no choice except to surrender. And then basically the the parts of the war machine that had been uh, tied up in Britain would have been available to to reinforce uh, the uh, the Operation Barbarossa forces uh, in the Soviet Union, and so the Nazis would have taken uh, Moscow. They would have deposed Stalin, and then that would have been that. Uh, the other thing, <clears throat> and arguably this was probably the most crucial uh, for keeping the Soviets in the war. And guys, 
if you doubt me on this, just keep in mind, <clears throat> uh, Nikita Khrushchev wrote about this in his own fucking autobiography, okay? So if you doubt what I'm going to say next, just keep in mind, this comes from Nikita Khrushchev, who was a commissar to Stalin, hims the, the military commissar under Stalin himself, okay? If anybody's equipped or qualified to make the claim that I'm about to make, it's Nikita Khrushchev, right? <clears throat> and what Khrushchev said is that ult uh, ultimately it really did come down to the Americans. Uh, basically, uh, the United States Congress passed and then pros uh, President Roosevelt signed the Lend-Lease Act of, uh, it might have been 1940, but I'm thinking it was 1941, whereby basically the United States would arm the uh, – basically they would arm the allies before the United States came into the war ourselves, right? And so basically that military reinforcement to the Soviets, again, this kept them in, in the war when, according to Khrushchev, nothing else would. So even if Hitler had launched Operation Barbarossa when he did, even if – Hitler had not been able to <clears throat> uh, uh, force uh, Britain's surrender and then reinforce Operation Barbarossa with the military forces that had been in Britain, they still would have taken Moscow and deposed Stalin, and that would have been that, except for Lend-Lease. And then it's basically those three factors, the weather, uh, the war with uh, Britain, and then uh, the United States passing Lend-Lease. Really... Any one of those three things, or any really any two of those three things, would have been surmount, uh, surmountable uh, for the Nazis, and they could have taken uh, Moscow, deposed Stalin, and then that would have been that. But they couldn't. They obviously couldn't handle all three of those things, and so ultimately, that's what that's what uh, uh, turned the uh, the German invasion of the Soviet Union into more of a rout than it probably would have been otherwise, and so. And here's the point. For this guy, Alexander Baranovich Formenchiko, to say that he was in Leningrad in 1941 and there he stayed for three fucking years. I mean, this guy was in the shit. I mean, that those battles, I mean, they would, guys, you got to understand, they fucking, they went on for years in some cases, you know, months in, uh, in, in some cases, years in other cases. I mean, this guy... He's got to be one tough son of a bitch, and, and he's obviously uh, basically regretting, I guess, how the Soviet Union's star really had fallen. You know that there there was no Soviet Union uh, anymore, and that uh, basically Russia was basically uh, a shambles for until fairly recently, in fact. And so, you know, from the standpoint that this guy's probably looking at, I mean, he's thinking about, I suppose, the uh, tenure of uh, Boris Yeltsin and then probably the first several years of, of, of uh, Vladimir Putin. And at that time, you know, Russia was kind of a shithole, you know? And I don't really think that started turning around until probably about the mid-2000s or so. And... You know, Russia really did regain a lot of national pride. Their economy started coming back, and there were a lot of things that were starting to work their way. You know, but that's not necessarily the the, the point of view that this old timer is thinking of. I mean, he's remembering the the uh, the salad days of the Soviet Union whenever they turned back with a lot of luck and a lot of help. They still turned back the largest military invasion in the history of mankind, and so I can kind of understand on some level, where he's coming from whenever he laments what Russia has become, you know, and kind of makes sense to me. So anyway, not to sound like a communist or anything, I'm just saying I, I think I can understand where, where this guy's coming from. So anyway, so this guy ends up making a little, he ends up causing a little bit of a scene inside of this Russian bar, and he ends up getting kicked out. And luckily for him, the Punisher just happens to be sitting in this same bar because, again, he's hunting Leon Rastovich, and he's basically trying to find a lead. And this and this old timer basically starts shit talking Leon Rastovich, and <clears throat> it becomes pretty clear that 
The other patrons in this bar may very well know where Leon Rastovich is hiding. And so, you know, the Punisher's own internal monologue says, Got business of my own with Rastovich. Unfinished business. Two days I've been hunting the maggot down here. Then I stop for a sandwich and a lead falls right in my lap. Before I follow it up, a little community work. And so, he, uh, with the bar otherwise empty, he grabs the, uh, the uh, barkeep by the hair, forces him down on, on the top of the bar, and pulls out this big, ugly, scary-looking knife. And he says, Alexander Baranovich Formenchiko is protected. And that's basically that. And this is really more of a warning. I mean, yeah, he fucks the bartender up pretty good by slamming his face into the top of the bar. But the guy's still alive, you know? And so, you know, this is, I guess this is the Punisher dealing with people with kids' gloves a little bit. And uh, his internal monologue says as he walks out the door, got kind of a thing about respect for the elderly. So, <laughs> I love it. So, anyway, elsewhere, the uh, the other patrons of the bar are following Alexander Baranovich for Menchico uh, around. Basically, they're they're talking shit. They they're basically wanting to shut his uh, shut him up about uh, Leon Rastovich. And I mean, we're basically talking about three guys that look to be in their uh, somewhere in their twenties, over and against somebody who. Gee, I wonder. I wonder how old Formenchico would be. Let's see. <sighs> okay, for ease of math, we're just going to assume that. This story takes place in 2004, so subtract from that 1941, so that was 63 years earlier. So we'll just assume that Formenchiko was 18 at the time, so golly. So that basically means that there, you have these three 20-something-year-olds that are following around an 80-plus-year-old man, you know, and they're basically wanting to... Uh, uh, to beat the hell out of him, or worse, you know, this old man who's in his 80s, you know, and that that's just pretty hard. But they never really get a chance because uh, the, uh, the, the Punisher pulls all three of them into an alley and basically demands to know where Leon Rastovich is hiding. One of them basically just says, fuck you. So Punisher shoots one of them, then just for fun and games, shoots another one of them. So that leaves the third one, uh, who who is he's seen the light of reason, shall we say? He's willing to sell out Leon Rastovich, and so uh, he he basically reveals that Leon is hiding at his mother's house, and so Punisher shoots him, and his internal <laughs> I, I just I love his monol his internal monologues in this issue. He uh, as he shoots him, he says little bit pissed. I didn't think of that myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I love it. So anyway, uh, from there, I wish I could tell you the pages, but say it with me. They don't number the pages. So, uh, but we uh, cut to a scene uh, of uh, Nick Fl uh, Nick Fury uh, flying around on an airplane with a, with, with a couple of uh, Air Force generals. And, of course, he's smoking a cigar, and because he's such a badass, he doesn't care that smoking is not permitted on this flight because he's smoking anyway, and that's just what a badass he is because he's such a badass, you know, and whatever. I mean, the dialogue in this sequence isn't really as obnoxious and cliched as it might be, but it's a little bit close. So, anyway. Uh, but basically, the... Um, Fury and the Air Force generals, they just don't get along. It's really that simple. They do not get along. They do not like each other. And basically, everybody's having to cooperate here so that they can all get something they want. And what the generals want isn't immediately clear, but when you guys find out about it, because I'm going to, obviously, I'm coming back to these issues at some point or another. When you guys find out about it, it'll probably make more sense. But, um, and even what Nick Fury wants isn't completely obvious, at least yet. We're, We'll get to that in just a little while, though, but it's not immediately obvious. But the point is, they're all in this, and they all have an agenda. But don't don't ever confuse yourself. They do not like each other. And so what becomes clear from the dialogue is that uh, Fury's job is basically to, to secure the Punisher's assistance with whatever it is that they're trying to do. And 
the generals are rightly skeptical about how that could possibly how that could possibly happen because one of them says to fury he says did you know for instance that early last year a cia team approached this son of a bitch with a similar offer that under circumstances that remain unclear said team including a special forces unit seconded from fort bragg was wiped out almost to a man and Fury's response to that is, fuck with the bull, you get the horns. And so basically, it it's obvious that whatever it is that these guys have in mind, they need the Punisher to do it. And in order to get the Punisher to do it, they need Nick Fury. And so it's basically you've got all of these uh, different agendas that are going on. And if you remember the first uh, storyline that I talked about uh, with the Punisher Max in the beginning... You know that the Punisher, his services aren't really for hire. He does what he what he does. He goes where he goes, and pretty much that's that. You know, you're not going to pay him to do something, and you're not going to pay him, especially to do something that he doesn't want to do. And so, you know, these generals are right to be skeptical, but maybe Nick Fury is right to think that he can reason with Frank where. Other people maybe couldn't. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Elsewhere, back at uh, the home of Leon Rastovich's mom, he's basically got the place uh, surrounded with uh, his his thugs, pretty much. And the reason for that is because when, he, when Leon Rastovich found out that uh, the Punisher was gunning for him, he ran to the cops and basically gave himself up. And so in exchange for a relatively more lenient sentence, he had to roll over on a lot of people. So what do you want to bet that those people that he rolled over on might not be very happy with him? And maybe they're going to want to come gunning for this guy themselves. And so anyway, uh, the Punisher, uh, the Punisher's internal monologue. Again, I just dig this, this internal monologue here. He says, once the shooting starts, and he's talking about uh, Rastovich's uh, thugs, once the shooting starts, they'll be through the front door like gangbusters. Dozen of them. One of me, potentially very messy. I could just do the job and run, but that'd leave them free to hire on with some other asshole. Scum like Leon Rastovich are never short of willing talent, which was what saved him last time. Two years ago, I hit a club he owned on Avenue X, whole thing went like clockwork. Except he turned out to have more bodyguards than I had ammunition. That meant I had to improvise, which gave Rastovich the time to pull a masterstroke. He ran like hell and gave himself up to the cops, which got him 30 years to life in the one place I could never reach him. How you get early release from multiple murder and child prostitution, like this piece of shit did Friday morning, I can't begin to guess. And we're going to find out exactly how that happened. But basically, you've got Leon Rastovich. He's chilling out in his mother's ki uh, kitchen. She's eat uh, he's eating dumplings. And life is pretty good right up until the moment that the Punisher opens fire on Rastovich and takes him out right away. He storms into the house, and Rastovich's mom is, I think the clinical term is, losing her shit. She's freaking out. She charges the Punisher with a butcher knife. And again, <laughs> I love his internal monologue. Um, he's talking about, uh, the, uh, the charges that the FBI had against, uh, Mrs. Rastovich and Leon never rolled over on her so they could never make the charges stick, the, the charges they had on her stick. And so that's really like setting the table on all of this. But, uh, the, the Punisher's internal monologue says Bureau never did make those charges stick, had half an idea about giving her the benefit of the doubt. And then we uh, flash over to a panel of, um, the Punisher blowing her into the next life, and he says, fuck it. <laughs> uh, I love it. So right around then, uh, uh, Rastovich's goons uh, kick the front door open um, in the front of the house, right, at, right as the Punisher in the kitchen uh, turns, the, uh, turns on the gas stove and lets you know the place get a little bit full of gas and whatnot. He uh, runs out of the house, tosses a grenade into the kitchen and the amount of gas that escaped from the stove in the few seconds that uh, the Punisher was out of the room 
it's not enough to really uh, create an explosion that's going to kill anybody, or at least not very many people. It's basically going to just hurt like hell is pretty much what it comes down to. So the explosion knocks um, uh, all of uh, Rastovich's thugs out into the backyard where the Punisher finishes, uh, finishes them off with what looks like a, uh, a uh, machine gun. And uh, he's just uh, just blowing them away. And here again, I mean, you know, his his internal monologue is this is a little grittier, but I still kind of like it. Uh, he says they like to think they're soldiers, but they're whores selling their youth and strength to monsters, protecting filth who deal in fear in poison in the bodies of innocent children. You work for the devil. You better be ready to die for him. And. That's basically the Punisher's entire mission statement right there. You work for the devil, you better be ready to die for him. And that's pretty much that. So the Punisher is making his escape when he gets intercepted by Nick Fury, who, unlike Micro, like when the Punisher saw Micro, he instantly knew what was going on and he tried to raise his uh, shotgun up to defend himself. That doesn't really happen here. Uh, Basically, he knows that or at least he suspects that Fury isn't really about to uh, get the drop on him with anything. He says, look, just want to talk. And pretty much that's what happens. They find themselves in another shitty looking bar. I'm guessing there are a lot of shitty bars in New York City. I mean, I've never been there, but, you know, the number of uh, shitty bars in New York City that are shown in movies and TV shows and comic books and who the hell knows what else. I don't know. It just makes me think that, you know, it's like a city full of nothing but shitty bars. So anyway, uh, they have their back and forth. And basically, Fury starts laying out not necessarily the total offer like, you know, this is what the job is. This is what you have to do. This is where you need to go. This is who you need to kill. You know, all of that stuff. He basically just says one job, high risk, just about impossible. You fuck up, no one's ever heard of you. And the Punisher initially declines it. And so uh, Fury says, that's why I knew I'd have to make this good. Usernames and passwords. DEA, FBI, Customs, INS, um, which I assume means uh, Department of Homeland Security now. But anyway, the Coast Guard, every major police department on the eastern seaboard. Log on anytime you want, and you'll know everything they know. You'll even have satellite surveillance. Every shitbag from Maine to Miami will be living his life in your gun sites. And so, you know, the Punisher, he's willing to talk turkey at least a little bit about, you know, what exactly is this about? You know, who are you working for? And and, uh, basically, what's in it for you? And what comes out here is that the carrot that's being dangled by these uh, Army and Air Force generals is Nick Fury getting, basically, retaking control of S.H.I.E.L.D. for good. And so he's willing to help the generals in exchange for control of S.H.I.E.L.D. So uh, we know what the Punisher is getting. He's getting all of, uh, all of this access to law enforcement uh, databases and all that fun stuff. Fury is getting control of S.H.I.E.L.D. back, so... It raises the question, what's in it now for the generals? What do they hope to get? And that answer, we do get it. It's just not in this issue, so I'm going to have to save that for the future. But basically, it, it it's made clear that there may be other people that can do this job, but Frank Castle is the only guy that Nick Fury would personally trust. Anyone else... Just no, you know, any number of ways that this could this could go sideways, right? So from there, we we basically cut to uh, it. It never actually says where, but it looks kind of Middle Eastern. And a person unknown is speaking to persons unknown, at least for right now. Um, and it basically looks like. He's recruiting terrorists to do something or other that involves an airplane. So, who knows? And so, anyway, uh, 
the uh, the conversation ends, and so we cut back to the United States, and we find out that the person that uh, this guy Rollins, the operative in the Middle East, we find out that the uh, the group that uh, he was speaking to is the very same Army and Air Force generals that Nick Fury's been dealing with. So what the fuck? What's going on here? Is this some kind of a double cross that's happening here? So anyway, and that's basically the end of the issue. And so. Uh, I haven't really talked a whole lot about the art, um, and honestly, I mean, it's not like the art's bad or anything. I actually, I actually really dig it. It's got basically a Braithwaite has this kind of uh, scratchy style, and it's it's it, it it's not the kind of thing that I I don't think this is really appropriate uh, for everything. But it does kind of remind me somewhat of uh, Louis LaRosa's uh, work from um, uh, The Punisher Max Number 1. I would say they're similar to each other. You wouldn't necessarily mistake one for the other. But it's just this kind of uh, scratchy, uh, dark kind of uh, line style that really is perfect uh, for this type of story, you know? And he's got these deep, dark shadows, but he knows how to do shadow detailing and all of that. And so... I don't know, I just, I think it's really well done, and this is the type of art, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a Doug Braithwaite, but Doug Braithwaite or, art, or artists with a kind of similar style, this is what I think is probably most appropriate for the Punisher Max. I mean, can you imagine what Mike Wyringo drawing the Punisher Max might look, I mean, I just, I can't see it, you know? Then again, I mean, I, I don't know. It's like I don't really want to bet against Ringo. I just don't... I can't imagine him drawing uh, a really gritty, dark, and kind of violent uh, a Punisher story, you know? So, I don't know. But, anyway. Overall, I really enjoyed this issue in general. Or rather, this issue in particular. And really, this this uh, Mother Russia storyline in general. I just think it's it's really well done. And it's just... it's It's entertaining. I mean... Garth Ennis really did crack the code. I mean, he figured out a way to make the Punisher an interesting character. And when you can do that, you know you're doing your job well. So kudos, Garth Ennis, and job well done. Really dig it. So anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for the Punisher Max number 13. And as it happens, that's also pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, I'm not really completely sure what I'm going to be talking about just yet. Um, there are a couple of things that, uh, some irons that I've got in the fire, so we're just gonna have to see how things turn out, but, uh, uh, this episode is actually running a little bit short, so, uh, just stand by. I'm gonna take a break and be right back after these messages. Stay tuned. is over and Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is back. And you know what else is back? Magnus talks about Smallville. My podcast's usual discussion about comics, movies, and TV shows periodically gets put on hold so that I can go full fanboy on Smallville. Smallville is the most underrated live-action adaptation of Superman in all of history and personally, It's my favorite live-action incarnation of Superman, and I'm not alone either. 
Because listeners all around the world have been shocked to discover just how awesome Smallville is and just how well it holds up to critical scrutiny. Now that the hiatus is over, I'm planning to continue my reappraisal of Smallville Phase 2 by taking a deep dive into the Sainted Season 7. Through the course of my discussion, I'll reveal why the Sainted Season 7 is my favorite season of Smallville's entire run, and I want you along for the ride. Check out Magnus Talks About Smallville, returning to Trinus Magnus Punches Reality in the summer of 2019. And listen for yourself about why Smallville in general and the Sainted Season 7 in particular are both awesome. Magnus Talks About Smallville, coming back soon to twotruefreaks.com. got a little bit of feedback that I wanted to go through, but before I get into that, you know, I thought very seriously about releasing a, a very special episode of Trinus Magnus Jabs Reality to talk about goings-on with the new Batman movie and the possibly definitely confirmed casting of Robert Pattinson as Batman. Maybe it's potentially confirmed that it's definitely happening perhaps, you know, and just the kind of, the sort of push-pull, uh, declarative, or conditionally declarative, uh, language that a lot of these just fucking trash clickbait websites use with these sorts of things. Guys, there's no such thing as a possible spoiler. Something is either a spoiler or it's not. A spoiler, by definition, is something that is definitely happening. So if you ever, if you've ever found yourself using the the non-existent expression possible spoiler just stop fucking doing that okay it's it's idiotic it's beneath you anyone who listens to my show is going to be more erudite than that we all know this so don't use douchebag expressions like that it's just dumb and it's also dumb to use things like it's potentially confirmed it's Something is either potential or it's confirmed, right? And I understand that a lot of these, like I say, a lot of these just trash websites, they want to be firstest with the mostest because that's how you get uh, the highest number of clicks and everything. And honestly, it's not that I'm not sympathetic to their business model. It's just that I'm not sympathetic to their business model. I don't give a flying fuck up a running squirrel's ass who's first. I just want good information. And it's, you know, I, I guess I would expect better of variety. Now, I, some, that may strike some of you as funny, but just hear me out. Guys, Variety is a Hollywood trade magazine, okay? This is not um, Access Hollywood or this isn't Entertainment Tonight, okay? This is not some trash publication. Let me rephrase that. It is a trash publication, but it's less of a trash publication than some of these other alternatives, right? Hollywood has been known on many occasions to use Variety as sort of a dumping ground for like official stuff that they don't want to bother releasing as, a, as, as an official press release. Generally speaking, if you read something in Variety, take it to the bank, okay? It's, it, unless you're expecting a like an email from somebody's agent or something like that reading about it in variety 
that's about as close to gospel as it gets. All right, so when you see something in variety, at least historically, you can rest assured that this is this is really what's happening. I'm not saying you have to like it. I'm just saying that you can rest assured this is what's going to happen. And yet, to read this stuff going on with Robert Pattinson possibly playing Batman, you've got variety. To their credit, they're saying that this isn't an official thing yet, but basically the principles of both sides are in final negotiations for Robert Pattinson to play Batman. So I, I'm going to go a little bit easy on, on variety here because what they are officially declaring is that final negotiations are taking place. That's what's going on. And so... Be that as it may, they're still using a little bit of conditional language, you know, like con like conditionally declarative language in at least their headline that, you know, Robert Pattinson is definitely playing Batman, we think, you know, and the story itself is actually very informative insofar as it goes anyways, but nevertheless, you know, that's what's going on. And so... What I think we should take from this is that in all probability, Robert Pattinson probably will be playing Batman when all is said and done. And like I say, I was thinking about turning all of that into an episode of Trinus Magnus Jab's reality. It's just that here I am criticizing all of these piece of shit, just trash websites, you know, for wanting to be firstest with the mostest with absolutely jack fucking shit. And it would, it would seem a little bit hypocritical to me to turn right around and give my own hot take on something just for the sake of getting something out there. And then what I realized is, you know, I mean, I can kind of split the difference here a little bit, just wait a few more days and incorporate this into the feedback section of the next episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality and sort of have my cake and eat it too, while at the same time giving you guys what I at least think is a little bit of a reasoned response here. Inasmuch as, guys, I'm pretty much okay with Robert Pattinson playing Batman. I mean, he's got kind of a Bruce Wayne sort of look to him. Or at least you can see where he could at least summon a kind of Bruce Wayne vibe based on just paparazzi photos. You notice him? Well, actually, I don't know if these are paparazzi, but like press line type of photos. He's showing up at some event doing God knows what, and he's wearing a like a black suit. You know, or maybe he's even wearing like a tuxedo or something like that. And he just looks kind of Bruce Wayne-ish to me, you know? So, whatever. So, I, I, I guess there's that. But the other thing is, guys, when I cast my memory back, I'm at a real loss to think of anybody who's played Batman badly. You know, I just, I can't really think of one, you know? Adam West... You know, for the type of Batman that he was playing, I thought he did a phenomenal job. He's one of my favorite Batman, in fact. Uh, Michael Keaton, Val Kilmer, even George Clooney. Guys, again, the type of Batman that George Clooney was playing was great. I don't have a problem with that. A very sort of like late Golden Age, uh, almost like Dick Sprang type of Batman. I actually kind of like that. You know, I dig that. I like Batman and Robin. I dig that movie. I... I dig George Clooney in that movie. I think he did a good job. Uh, you know, Christian Bale, uh, Ben Affleck, all of these guys were the exact type of Batman that they needed to be. I mean, I guess people can love Robert Pattinson or they can hate him, but traditionally speaking, Batman movies have always been cast very well. And I typically just, I don't have a whole lot of words of criticism for virtually any Batman movie that I've ever seen. Now, the seemingly pink elephant in the room on that for a lot of people is going to be Batman and Robin. And generally speaking, when people criticize the cast of Batman and Robin, or they criticize a lot of uh, Doc, uh, or Mr. Freeze's um, I almost said Doctor Strange for some reason, but a lot of Mr. Freeze's uh, dialogue in Batman and Robin, so on and so on and so on. Really what they're doing is they're criticizing the tone and style of Batman and Robin. It's really not about the cast of the movie, or I would say even the script. What they, do, what, what they just fundamentally don't like is the style that Joel Schumacher used 
for Batman and Robin, right? Now they can frame that around George Clooney, like I say, or or, or Mr. Freeze, or this di this bit of dialogue over here, or, or or just whatever. But at the end of the day, what they're really criticizing is the style of Batman and Robin. But just on a technical level, you know, putting aside you know whether or not you find this presentation of Batman to be enjoyable or not. I dig Batman and Robin, guys. I, I think that's a good Batman movie. You know, I, I mean, obviously it's not for everybody. I, I would certainly never claim anything else. But, you know, my point is, I have never seen anybody play Batman badly before. You know, at least in live action. Now, there have been some kind of questionable voice actors over the years. But, in the main, I've just never seen a bad live action Batman performance. It's just, I've never seen it, you know. And so my point in saying that is, is to say that I, I don't really know a whole lot about you know Robert Pattinson. I, I haven't really seen a whole lot of his work, but he's definitely got the look. And what little of his work that I have seen, yeah, I, you know, I, if he can play that type of stuff, it stands to reason he can probably play Batman too. I mean, it's certainly it's within the realm of possibility. So all in all, I think that this movie is actually going along in a pretty good direction. You know, the one casting announcement that we have so far, I think this is going along actually in a in a pretty good direction. So, you know, maybe the movie will turn out to be good, maybe it won't. I don't really know, but what I do know is that Robert Pattinson playing Batman, to me, that seems like a step in the right direction, you know? I'm kind of interested to see what's coming. Not least because you know some of the other names and naming those names gains me nothing so I won't do it but some of the other names that have been batted around to play Batman in this movie really are underwhelming you know so by comparison if nothing else Robert Pattinson definitely seems like the more interesting approach to the character for me you know and you hear all these people bitching and complaining about how Robert Pattinson doesn't really break the mold. Fuck the mold. Okay, I'm, I'm whatever. I'm just not even going to get into that. So, anyway, all in all, you know, I'm willing to keep an open mind, you know. I kind of want to see what's coming, and I don't know. Who knows? I'm, maybe it could be good. So, anyway. But like I say, I've got some feedback that I want to work through here. And the reason I chose this particular piece of feedback is because apart from the Batman stuff that I just talked about, it actually does uh, tie in with the content, like the main content of this episode. This comes, this uh, email comes in from my old friend, Fanboy Miss Prime. Guys, just to kind of give you an idea of how far behind I am on my feedback, this was sent on December the 2nd, 2014, okay? 2014, 2014. So, pretty far behind as you can imagine but uh anyway the subject line of this of this email is punisher max and the only thing that makes sense to me is that uh, prime here is talking about episode 72 uh which for those of you who are too lazy to check that was uh, an episode i did entitled in the beginning and the subject matter for that episode was uh punisher max numbers one through six basically the entire in the beginning storyline I just wanted to you know fit all of that uh, inside of one episode because well this was episode 72 of my show and it hadn't really occurred to me to spread these things out a little bit so you know basically try to have one episode for one issue of a comic book that hadn't completely sunk in for me just yet so I basically knocked it all out in one episode and to be totally honest about it I'm not sure how good a job I really did in talking about in the beginning but uh anyway that i guess is really neither here nor there suffice it to say episode 72 is what fanboy ms prime wants to talk about and he writes wow that was even more high uh, high octane yeah sorry about that i'm just gonna start all over wow that was even more high octane than the set in the marvel universe max punisher series I'm going to put this email on pause and say, dude, is that really a thing? Like a sort of R-rated 
Marvel 616 Punisher series? Was that really a thing? Like, And they called that Max? Uh, I don't actually know Prime, but... I mean, to me, that's almost like missing the point of what the Punisher Max was supposed to fucking be. And so I'd actually be kind of pissed off if that's the direction that Marvel went in, you know? Uh, that just it, that just seems so stupid to me. But anyway, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, uh, That was even more high-octane than the set in the Marvel Universe Max Punisher series, though with less weird humor. The only other Punisher story I'd, uh, I'd want seen on this show is the first volume of the Marvel Knight series. Chuck Dixon doing the street-level defenders with the team out to hunt down Frank Castle, and Frank going toe-to-toe with You Look the Troll, among other things. I'm going to put this email back uh, back on pause and say, uh, Prime, I don't really know a whole lot about uh, the Marvel Knights uh, stuff, apart from Daredevil. I mean, I don't really know a whole lot about the the Marvel Knights stuff. The... uh, Basically, I've read a little bit of uh, Chuck Dixon uh, Punisher stuff over the years, and frankly, I've even enjoyed it, especially the the stuff that he did with, with John Romita Jr. I just thought that stuff was great, you know? But I certainly would not position myself as some type of an authority on uh, Chuck Dixon's work on, on the Punisher, but I will say that I've, in, that I've in fact, I've greatly enjoyed the, the Chuck Dixon Punisher stories that I've read, and so, you know, for you to kind of give the the Marvel Knights thing such a glowing recommendation, honestly, that doesn't really come as a major surprise to me. I don't know if I'm ever going to talk about it on the show. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. I think I've said uh, quite a few times now that for me, Garth Ennis, his work on The Punisher really is definitive for me, you know? Other people are welcome to sort of make their own their own opinion on that. It's really not my business to comment too much on that. I mean, the last thing I'd ever want to do is position myself as some kind of Punisher expert. But at least for what I want from a Punisher story, Garth Ennis delivered it every single time. And so I don't really have a whole lot of hesitation in saying that, you know, this other stuff that you're talking about, Marvel Knights... That definitely sounds interesting, and for that matter, I may even read it someday, you know? But uh, in terms of talking about it on the show, I'm really not prepared to promise anything on that. So I'm not saying yes, I'm not saying no. I'm just saying that at least for what I want out of The Punisher, Garth Ennis is pretty much it. And kind of the way I look at it is, if I'm going to podcast about The Punisher, why not podcast about my favorite Punisher, you know? So anyway... Like I say, though, I'm not closing the door on it, so I'm just saying don't prime, like don't take this the wrong way, but uh, don't get your hopes up. So anyway, getting back into Prime's email, he writes, Yes, Frank versus the being that brawling with Thor is his normal day. It goes about as well as you can imagine, but Frank does not quit and is willing to drag Ulick to hell with him via his last-ditch weapon that he's ready to use. <laughs> a, a prime i'm putting your email back on pa, uh, on pause here prime i gotta tell you that actually sounds kind of interesting <laughs> i'd actually kind of you know i might actually want to check into that now and uh, uh i don't know again i'm not promising anything but wow you that is a good sell right there so anyway uh prime's email goes on to say will it top garth ennis's run in your mind no chance of that i'm sure but still might be enjoyable I guess that's it for now. Signed, Fanboy MS Prime. And Prime, uh, first of all, thank you very much for taking the time to write in. Uh, Second of all, you know, uh, again, I may or may not read that that, uh, Marvel Knights Punisher stuff by Chuck Dixon. And from there, I may or may not podcast about it. You know, I don't really know. But at the very least, you've definitely peaked my interest here. I'll say that much. This is, uh, this actually sounds kind of interesting. You know, the defenders, uh, out to track, uh, Frank Castle down and all that. And I don't know. See, cause you know, prime, the thing is I've heard a lot of stuff about this, uh, uh, about the, those, uh, kind of first run Marvel Knights, uh, titles that came out and the amount of, like almost OCD level of control that Joe uh, Joe Casada exercised over that line, and I'm assuming that's when this Chuck Dixon stuff came out. Like 
just the almost control freak level of control that uh, uh, Joe Casada exercised over the Marvel Knights line of comics, where he basically rehabilitated a bunch of Marvel characters that were, let's be real, guys, they were on the chopping block. I mean, that uh, the comics crash of 1993, Marvel took that straight to the chin. And so I think it would be fair to say that the Punisher was definitely an overexposed character in the 90s. I don't know how successful those comics really were, just in terms of monthly sales, you know? I always got the idea that the aggregate number of Punisher books that were sold every single month is actually really impressive. But each individual title by itself, I think it's fair to speculate that maybe those those weren't exactly selling like gangbusters. I've just I've always gotten that impression. And so... When the bottom fell out of the market, titles like Daredevil and, and to one degree or another, uh, uh, The Punisher, when the bottom fell out of the market, those comics took a serious fucking hit. And it got to a level in the mid, and especially into the late 90s, the mid to late 90s, where, you know what, it may be time to close up shop on those comics, you know. At least for the time being. Maybe not forever, but at least for the time being. And, you know, when you think about what that could entail for for the Marvel Universe, that they were willing to let Joe Quesada do basically whatever he wanted as a sort of junior editor or sub-editor or whatever you want to call it, basically creating a, a sort of like mini imprint Marvel Knights for him to just throw a bunch of shit against the wall and just see what sticks. And my sense of Marvel Knights is that some of those books are going to be really, really good. Some of the other ones are going to be maybe not so good, but all of them are going to err on the side of taking risks and chances that would not have been possible with stuff. Honestly, I don't know what, what Marvel comics were selling like hotcakes in the mid to late nineties. I mean, Spider-Man, you know, Marvel was having to walk a lot of shit back with Spider-Man in the the late 90s. And, you know, the X-Men, I got the idea that their star was starting to fall beginning in the mid to late 90s. I never got the idea that the Avengers, there was interest in the Avengers, but I, I don't remember getting the idea that there was, th that there were just these huge masses of people that were beating down the doors you know, every Wednesday when new issues came out, you know, just et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it's kind of hard for me to think of any Marvel comic that was an, a clear and obvious success. Maybe I'm just re misremembering stuff. But my sense of it was always that Marvel, Marvel was really struggling, especially in the late 90s, to find anything that would sell, that, that would sell well. And I think that's, Again, not to repeat myself, but I think that's really one of the big reasons why uh, Joe Casada was basically allowed as much of a free hand as he was ultimately allowed with Marvel Knights that maybe the attitude in the editor-in-chief's office was, hey, we got nothing to lose and maybe a lot to gain. And in the end, of all things, it was Marvel Knights that a lot of those books found kind of they, – they found really strong and devoted audiences, you know, you – you can find people who to this day will will point back to, to Marvel Knights and saying, you know, Marvel really – for a brief moment in, in time, Marvel really did capture something special there. You know, with Kevin Smith on Daredevil and Chuck – my memory is that it was Chuck Dixon who was writing uh, the Marvel Knights Punisher series, at least to start. And, you know, just going from there that people will still point back to that stuff and say, man – that was some really high quality stuff at, in a time and in a place when the comic book industry in general, and I would say Marvel in particular, really needed it, you know? And it's sort of like anything else that Marvel, I think at least tried, like the Marvel as a wider company, they definitely tried uh, capitalizing and maybe exploiting Marvel Knights to a sort of inappropriate degree. And I honestly don't know how successful Joe Casada was in shutting that shit down. But, you know, in the main, like I say, those books have a have 
quite a devoted following to him, and uh, I don't know. So like I say, maybe, you know what, actually, you know what, maybe what I'll do is I'll take a, take sort of a, a look back at Marvel Knights, sort of as an imprint, you know, Marvel Knights, the early days, and the stuff that came out of that, take a little bit, maybe more of a holistic approach, and you know what, maybe I'll even find somebody who wants to talk about that, I don't know, I'll kind of kicking that idea around but honestly that, that honestly just just now occurred to me so uh i'll give it some thought prime again not making any promises but we'll we'll see what happens so anyway and i think that's pretty much it for me uh for right now and so right about now is usually when i would say and that i think is pretty much it for this uh for this week so bye everybody i will see you next week except i'm not going to say that because i don't uh, guarantee a weekly release schedule for Trennis Magnus Puncher's Reality anymore. I just don't do it. So if I can get an episode out in a given week, then hey, good for you guys. It's you're you're getting an episode. Good for you. But maybe I can't get an episode out, or maybe I just don't fucking feel like sending out a new episode. I mean, I did this shit every single week without without ever missing missing a deadline for over five years. So hopefully by now. I've proven that it's possible. So what I want to do with my podcast from now on is focus more on quality as opposed to quantity, you know? I want to deliver something that's actually worth listening to, and hopefully you guys will agree with me on that, that it is, maybe if it does take a little bit longer, well, number one, it's free, and number two, it's maybe a higher quality product than it would have been otherwise, so I don't know, we'll have to wait and see, but... So that, I think, is pretty much it for me for this week. So bye, everybody. I'll see you next time. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens and dozens of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And 
Just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon, because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonsecor of Milan, Italy. <laughs>